G'day, this is Ozzy Butler from Astronomy Class. You're tuned to 3CR on 855 AM or 3cr.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. Enjoy. And welcome to the first Renegade Economist show in the studio here at 3CR for 2016. And what an eventful start to the year it's already been. When you hear today's discussion and uh, the, the term rents, hopefully many regular listeners will be picking up on that. But we're talking about essentially the economic rents, the unearned income, the magic money that those who who own prime locations can enjoy in their sleep. There's no productive effort required to earn this money. So, of course, that's our general theme here on The Renegade Economist. So let's settle into today's show. Here we are at the Prosper Australia office in North Melbourne, and we're jumping in on a passionate conversation we always have around the table here. We've got Brian Kavanagh, Catherine Cashmore, Jesse Herman, Carl Williams, and goodness me, a few other people. Uh, Bruce Every sliding out here, but we've been debating the state of the market this morning. We've got strategies underway for the new value capture uh, inquiry that the city's minister has launched. So there's a lot happening in our world. And as always, with this rocky state of the global economy, uh, the role of a property and rent seeking uh, is written all over it. And to discuss things today, we start off with Catherine Cashmore. You're saying, look, what's winding out in the property market now as a property buyer, you're seeing uh, nothing too extraordinary. I think what people are asking is is what's happening to the clearance rate. Everyone's very focused on the, on the auction clearance rates, and the auction clearance rates have been um, softening from where they were mid last year and at the beginning of last year, where we were very much in a bull market, particularly in Sydney. And everyone's question when they see the auction clearance rate softening is what is going to happen to the property market and property prices? And of course, people that have invested time in Prosper and the policies that we do are asking, are we heading for another 2008 property crash? And the conversation, um, you know, well, first of all, you need to understand that the auction clearance rates only cover around 20 to 25 percent of the entire property market. So of all the properties that are sold Victoria wide, for example, and even less of a percentage in Sydney, the auction clearance rate only covers around 20 to 25 percent of all those properties that are sold. So it's a very small proportion of the um, market. Really? Is there only, tw- I thought it was about 50 percent in Victoria. But you're saying no, not at all. Only around twenty to twenty-five percent. But what you will find is, if you are one of the buyers that is shopping, property shopping within the inner suburbs or the middle ring suburbs, then it's more likely than not that you're going to be competing at auctions because the majority of those properties that are sold in those suburbs are properties that are going to be um, for sale by auction. Yes, uh, I agree with Catherine. I don't, I don't think there are all these great signs that the values are dropping and declining yet. And I think we've got to wait to see a stage where agents um, uh, have got an oversupply of stock Mm. and um, that hasn't that hasn't really occurred yet and uh, so I think a lot of these um, stories we're hearing are quite apocryphal really and I believe that we're having a bust when we when I see this enormous amount of stock uh, on agents hands that they can't uh, get rid of. There's there's basically three numbers in real estate, and when you're a, a property buyer these are the three numbers that you need to be aware of. The first number is is what the vendor wants. 
what the vendor wants for the property, so what the vendor's expectation is. The second number is what is the buyer competition telling you for that property? What is it worth to the other buyers? And the third number is, of course, is what is it worth to you? And that's going to be assessed through what your needs are for the property, whether you're an owner-occupier or whether you're an investor. And um, it's going to be done from your own market research as to what the other sales have been around there, around the property and what they're signifying for that property. And the the issue that you've got with a lot of these homes and a lot of home buyers is our biggest buying market are families with children. And families with children, they need good schools and they more often than not want a property with a backyard where they can have a private outdoors amenity lifestyle area for the children to play in. And these are the only properties in Melbourne that are diminishing in supply. The new properties that we're building in the outskirts in fringe locations, they don't have a backyard for kids to play in. They're built on around 400 to 450 square metres of land and they're a cheap style of housing where they're built to the border. So the builders maximise the, the space of the house to get as much yield as they can, as much profit as they can from the sale of that property. So the house component takes up a greater proportion of the entire value. And then what you're seeing in the middle ring suburbs where you still do have the 600 square meter blocks of land with the backyard and, and, and the original house on is that the um, governments are now uh, changing the zoning across those areas where they are in allowing increased density so that you can subdivide and sell off the backyard or you can put two or five subdivisions on that site. So when you're talking about property prices, if you're asking me to go and buy a unit um, in, the, in one of the central areas of Melbourne, it, it, where there's a high degree of unit supply coming onto the market, then sure, you're going to get a better better buy on that and you're going to have more downward pressure on prices. But if you're one of the many family buyers that wants to go into one of the middle ring suburbs and buy a house with a backyard, that supply is diminishing. And you're seeing that played out in rents. So though rents are dropping, when you get down to the micro level and you look at the rents, again, on in the Bayside areas on family homes, they are increasing in value. And that's... And that's um, you know, I think that's where it gets it gets difficult because it is a function at that level on supply and demand. Yes, because I think there are sweeping statements made across the board, aren't there? And you've got to look uh, as a valuer. I know this historically. You've got to look at each uh, each little area. They all behave differently, and uh, I, I tend to see things on a national basis and. Um, look at where the economy is but but when it comes to real estate you can't really do that but i think what we discussed earlier was that that we're not in a position at the moment when you see values really plummet or when vendors have to sell so as soon as vendors start to see the prices go down they're going to think to themselves the same as buyers when they start to see prices go down we'll you know we wait we're not going to we're not going to sell at 100,000 less than we were prepared to sell a few months ago so we'll wait we'll hold the house off market and we'll wait for a better time unless they're you know in a position where they have to and, and and some of these first-time investors, they've got one property, they've been uh, trying to ride the negative gearing angle and they're finding that's not working out so much. So perhaps they're the first to really crumble and sell. And Brian, how do you think that's playing out at the moment? Well, I think there must be some of those people that are starting to wonder, you know, if the capital growth isn't there and if um, interest rates were to turn the other way, although I don't think they will in Australia in the short term, but... Um, uh, I, I'd like to put to Catherine there are bigger forces that, uh, uh, you know at play at the moment, such as the uh, international stock markets and so forth. And can we can we ignore the effects of these on the um, on the property market? I mean, we had the October '87 uh, stock market decline, and nothing happened in the economy. And that that could be the situation that plays out here too. But we two years after that, we did have the '89 
property collapse and uh, we you don't sort of see that situation Catherine I tend to think that there's something in store for us in in, in the immediate couple of years you don't see that at all uh, no not not presently and I can understand I come from the same the same side as you when we're talking about what's happening to the economy and, and you know what's event what's going to be the eventual consequence of the policies that we have at the moment which is you know um, putting a lot of pressure on increasing prices and what that has on the overall economy and also talking about raising the GST but when you get into the conversation of what's happening to the stock market and stock market cycles and how's that how that is going to play out in the whole picture of things I don't think we're at the point of where we're going to see yeah, um, a, the economy the economy crumble yeah, yeah but yeah. having said that I mean if you've you know anybody who's familiar with Prosper would be familiar with Phil Anderson who talks about the housing cycle and stock market cycles and if you get into that you'll see that, that those points those weak points in the economy will come up in a few years and that we will have those points where the policies that we have in place now will consequence those things at, at the time that they are are going to happen the point is is that we can change those policies i'd agree with that entirely but in terms of the perfect storm we've got coming i mean this year really is uh, such a big one for the australian economy with uh, geelong shutting you know ford shutting right down of course we've got holden finishing up next year uh, we've got the mining sector plummeting terms of trade plummeting We've got QE3 now 14 months old since that's been wound out. Uh, that seems to be something that's shaking the uh, the global share market. And uh, we're told that uh, we, we need to innovate to, to re, reinvigorate this uh, great Australian economic miracle. So, I don't know, Jesse Hermans, perhaps you've got an angle on this. So where are we sitting uh, when it comes to all of these various factors coming through. Is the Australian economy going to be able to withstand it? Uh, yet again, our employment figures have have shown that uh, uh, there is no great drama in terms of employment at the moment. But Jesse Hermans from Fair Money Australia, perhaps you can add a new angle on things. Well, right now, what needs to happen is the government needs to innovate in policy, but that doesn't really seem like it's going to be happening in the near future. It might, it might with the, some of the new value capture stuff that's coming out. But in terms, in general, well, in the next few years, I'm not really sure what they're going to be able to pull out of the tank to keep things going along. But if things, if worse come, if worse comes to worse and things do go haywire, I mean, I'm sure that they'll pull out a lot of sort of policy, fiscal policy maneuvers to try and, um, uh, I mean, what they did in the GFC when they put out the stimulus packages, they'd probably just have to go for something like that again because, I mean, the saying goes is everyone's a Keynesian when you're caught in a foxhole or something like that. I would see them having to try and roll out some sort of stimulus again. And, I mean, it, it probably could take the worst brunt of it, but in, in general, the, I mean, there has to be a correction at some point. Uh, the things that are going along, it's just, it, can't, it cannot be sustained in the sense that it's just it, the sort of... Um, pressures that land price is putting on uh, the country is absurd. It's certainly, and uh, we've just had overnight that uh, a new survey of CEOs is out and uh, the guy Funky from the Australian Stock Exchange, the CEO there, was saying, look, uh, we're, we're basically drowning in $200 trillion in debt, which is not going to be repaid. Uh, 
Uh, Society General had a report out just this week as well saying similar things, that global debts are the big issue and economic growth rates are just not going to be high enough to repay these. So this is the scenario that sits in the background and driving it, of course, are these land-related debts and the incentives to property speculation. So it's really uh, just so interesting to be a renegade economist looking at all these factors and reading between the lines when you see even these you know, well-respected economists coming out to say, look, there aren't many tricks left in the government's policy tool bag anymore. They've wound interest rates down so far. What are they going to be able to do to, to re-trigger the economy? That's a very good question. Carl, I'll just step in briefly to say, yes, that Philip Seuss has just come out during the week to note that Australia now has the highest household debt to GDP in the world. Now, you can say that quickly, and it doesn't mean much, but we are really burdened with an enormous amount of debt that helps explain why the economy is just staggering. You know, if people have got debt, they haven't got free money to deal with. And uh, this is part of the problem. And, and Australia's somewhere along the line got to deal with this. The, the highest uh, debt to GDP ratio in the world as of last week. So, Jesse, how does that uh, fit in with uh, the monetary policies we've seen, some of the most radical in the, the um, history of mankind with, uh, what, $33 trillion or more pumped through the global economy, the EU saying, look, we're going to keep rolling it out, Japan on the case, America having wound it back and now starting to inch uh, interest rates upwards. Are those interest rate increases in America going to be the, the day of reckoning for this reckless monetary policy we've had now for so long? Well, actually, I would argue that those interest rate increases in the U.S. were unfounded and were actually um, more lobbying from Wall Street from rent seekers that were unhappy with the lack of return they were getting in terms of what they could get on reserves and they wanted a, a higher return. So they've been pressuring the Fed to increase rates and that it, honestly, based on all the metrics the Fed used, it made no sense whatsoever. Unemployment was still high. Inflation was still flatlining at less than 2%. There was no... Uh, reason to do it but they did it anyway and you could see all the consequences that sort of happened in the uh, coming days and weeks after that effect um, you know just currencies plummeted and stock markets hit but I mean how much of that was the Fed I guess is disputable but there were certainly knock-on effects in general though the, the monetary policy that central banks are pushing just it can't work on the basis that I mean they'll try and slash interest rates to convince uh, the private sector to borrow more to start reinvigorating growth. But then the question is, is what real income or production is going to back that increase in, in debt that the private sector is supposed to take? Like, What more consumption can the household sector do if all the consumption binge it did in the last 20 years was effectively credit? And they, if, they, if they've got to pay off their credit cards because they're not currency issuers, they're currency users, they have to find a source of income to pay back their debts. How are they going to afford consumption on standard everyday goods Absolutely. Uh, just <laughs> it, it can't be done it, it's just it's just not it's not possible i mean uh, at that so that sort of policy of trying to reinvigorate private debt growth it just can't work it's a one-off sort of shot once it's gone it's gone you you can't just keep trying to re-push the i mean the, i guess the saying was a souffle doesn't rise rise uh, twice um, you, you can't get that. Once that train's gone, it's gone. So uh, in terms of uh, the federal government, if the federal government doesn't step in since it's a currency issuer and 
allow the private sector to de-lever in some capacity, we're just going to end up like Japan. I mean, in Japan's probably the best case scenario um, in terms of not doing anything because at least they had a trade surplus, whereas uh, mm. countries like Australia have a trade deficit. So we're always getting money sucked out of the country through trade deficits. So it's not necessarily a bad thing in of itself because we're getting real terms of trade and real goods in return. But if money keeps leaving the country like that and then the government's trying to impose austerity like fiscal policy and trying to um, take money out of the private sector, what's the private sector supposed to do? It can't repay its debts, give money off to um, foreign imports and the government uh, and borrow more at the same time if it's got no income or production to back up that uh, borrowing. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with uh, an informal roundtable with some of the brains trusts here at Prosper Australia. We've got uh, Jesse Hermans from Fair Money Australia, our president, Catherine Cashmore, Brian Kavanagh from the Lambeau's Research Group and uh, our treasurer, Carl Williams, about to step on in now. How do you follow up a, a statement such as Jesse Hermans there? Where do we have to go, Carl? Well, with all of these questions about should we or shouldn't we... Uh, drop interest rates anymore. We've got to keep on bringing it back to the land question. Sure, business needs cheaper interest rates in order to borrow, invest and employ. But until we see land as being basically fixed in supply and uh, there being a never-ending demand for it, the more we lower interest rates, it's just going to put more uh, ability to borrow from the same fixed number of borrowers, which is going to result in, as we see time and time again, um, uh, ever unaffordable land. So sure, uh, make borrowing cheaper for business, but if all that's going to do is to inflate the market value of land. Um, all that's going to benefit is those who own two or more properties and the wannabe first, owner, first homeowner, they're going to be the one stuck despairing at ever owning their, their own home as lower interest rates boosts the market price of land and uh, and so the whole cycle goes on. So until we address the land question, until we take the speculative bubble out of land prices, uh, we're, we're always going to have this tension between wanting to make investment easier for businesses uh, and yet boosting um, the, uh, the, the never-ending land bubble. And pushing down interest rates seems to be a sense of uh, the, the new frontier of protectionism, if you like, to uh, push down the exchange rate so we have some sort of export competitiveness. And, and that's been the trend of the last five to six years. And it seems now that uh, everyone's onto it and perhaps uh, with interest rates changing in terms of their cycle, perhaps that game is over. I'm not sure, Catherine. Yeah, well, I think just going on from what Carl said, now is the most exciting time we've had politically, which is why we're all here today at, at Prosper and having a round table, which is to talk about the government's new initiatives towards value capture. And this, from our perspective at Prosper, is 
is extremely important because we've worked for so long to get the conversation of value capture at a federal level as well as a state level and to be able to get in front of the policy makers and push forward the very solid arguments towards having land value taxation, how that can help competitiveness, how that can revive the Australian economy by shifting taxes onto the resources and onto land. Um, and this is the conversation and this is why we need all our supporters and as, as many people as possible to rally behind us, to have a look at the information that we put on our website, to have a look at the reports that we, that we do and to see the solid arguments as to why a land tax can revive the Australian economy, why it is one of those unique situations where it is a very, it's, it's a good tax as averse to putting a burden on people and how it can have um, long lasting effects um, to help our, our competitiveness, you know, at, at a, a, across and, the board. And part of the matrix of, of uh, political economy is coming up with uh, an appropriate level of public education so people can understand these uh, tough concepts and that's what we're, we're discussing. And one of the tricky points is that uh, both property developers and first homeowners are trapped by the fact that the political system won't let land prices fall because of its effect on the banking system. And that really is the delicacy that uh, developers would rather give people free couches, free cars than write down the value of the land on their books because then the banks are going to come knocking on their doors saying, look, you've got to make that margin call up. So somehow we need to uh, find a way to apply pressure to uh, the banking system to say, look, uh, there, there's a need to... Um, uh, we need to find some way to write down these land-based debts back to the reality of our wages. And that's what uh, is coming through in these high-level economists and statesmen saying, look, uh, $200 trillion in global debt, we're never going to be able to repay it. So, Jesse Hermans, uh, what do you think in terms of uh, the monetary perspective is a, a way to address that core concern? Well, the fact is we have to deliver and if we, we can do it easy, either the easy way or the hard way and if we don't do it, then we'll just be stuck in a period of stagnation and it won't be the so-called secular stagnation that's sort of uh, been floating around in academic literature recently. It's, it's going to be more of a stagnation driven by a refusal to acknowledge what we've done wrong with the current sort of financial system. Sort and of like Japan's I've, lost decades. Oh, yeah. Uh, on top of their falling demographics, they've oh, had definitely. the perfect recipe for stagnation, and, and perhaps that's what you're saying is coming. Yeah. 25 yeah. years. Mm. So that, that stagnation will come if we don't do something. So uh, if we can do it the easy way, which would be just to have a sort of debt jubilee um, a, a sort of mechanism where you would write off most of the debts on an aggregate level um, and therefore allow everyone to deliver and then it wouldn't matter if you introduced a land tax or whatnot and then people have you know bills to pay on top of their mortgages and whatnot if all their a lot of their debts been wiped off then they could afford that burden and you would sort of reset the clock and there would be a, a lot better point to start from however um, if we don't write off the debts in a sort of a massive uh, one-off debt jubilee, then it's going to be a very slow process. Uh, the other alternative is if, if you just, if the government keeps running uh, 
um, fiscal deficits uh, to enable the private sector's net save and slowly repay its debts, then over time that will allow deleveraging. And I guess that's what sort of happened in England for a while. Um, they had a bit of deleveraging, but then the government's still pro-austerity, so that hasn't worked out very long. And then they try and kick off the property bubble again and prevent that. So unless that is supported and there is a process of deleveraging, be it a slow, painful one or a much better alternative would just be to have a debt jubilee, we're going to get stagnation. So those are really the three options that we're left with. A question for Brian is that our core issue here is replacing taxes on the productive sector and uh, capturing these economic rents. And we've quantified that at somewhere between 23 to 33% of GDP. So we're essentially saying we could increase the GDP pie by similar sort of percentages with this tax shift, how can we sell that to the banking industry to the 1% so that uh, we have a safer, more secure, uh, less boom-bust sort of society? Well, selling it to the bank sector is probably the hardest of our our difficulties because the bank is rent-seeking in this uncaptured rent. I mean, it it lent excessively uh, on inflated land values so they probably don't want to have a, a land tax or, or higher municipal rates introduced. But, but that could be the very mechanism that uh, Jesse's t- talking about to slowly deflate things if we, if we were to capture a bit more of these, of these rents. Um, but I wouldn't be looking for the banking system to be the, to be the leader here. The situation we are, <coughs> we're in a deflation uh, and, uh, and that's when prices go down. So Many people are better off in a deflation, but those who have got debt, uh, a little pebble on your shoulder of debt becomes a boulder and, and will crushes, and that's the critical thing. Jesse's point that uh, we do need to uh, deleverage some some way from this situation. We can't keep stumbling on without addressing it, and uh, who in a, a situation of deflation is going to spend now when they know they can, uh, their cash will buy them more later on? The government has got to de- deleverage us one way or another. They've got to start thinking in, in new directions altogether. We're on around our fifth Senate inquiry now into housing affordability that we've had since the, the sort of mid-2000s, and we've had three in very quick succession. We're now talking about submitting for a value capture inquiry. We did just before Christmas, both you and I, Carl, we talked a, a, about that. And uh, the the trouble with all of these inquiries is, is that nothing is done and no policies are put into place. And I think what people and people listening to this have to understand now is that the responsibility for what happens to the economy has to come back to you, the listener who is listening now, is to look and to understand and to self-educate on the what we are trying to do at Prosper, how we are trying to put in place policies that will reduce the burden on people, that will lower land prices, that will enable small businesses to thrive, that will enable first home buyers and your children to be able to buy a house without taking on a large lump of mortgage debt, that will allow people to have greater competitiveness within the economy and greater work options. These are all things that we can't do without the support of people out there educating themselves. And through that, through coming up from the ground up and having more and more people understand what we're trying to do, then perhaps when we go and present at these inquiries, we can have better success knowing that there is a growing voter base behind us that understands what we're trying to do and how we're trying to revive the economy. There's nothing that can be more important 
in terms of Australia's future than, than the, the job that, that we are ourselves entrusted with and we are entrusting our listeners with. Well said, Catherine, and thanks very much to Jesse, Brian, K1 and Catherine for joining us here on The Renegade Economist. Certainly all our metrics are up across WebPits, membership, Facebook groups, Twitter groups. Thanks for all the retweets and comments over the holiday period. I look forward to sharing another chapter in The Renegade Economist here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves next week. And there we have today's roundtable. Check out earthsharing.org.au for a screed of links. Uh, most weeks' uh, show notes will be there. Also, prosper.org.au, our main website, our parent group that uh, provides the funding for us here on 3CR. So thanks very much for listening. My name's Carl Fitzgerald, and we'll be in touch next week. The New International Bookshop, Melbourne's famous left-wing bookshop. We stock the widest range of left-wing literature and merchandise, as well as heaps of cheap quality second-hand books. Visit Nibs at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, or online at www.newinternationalbookshop.org.au. The New International Bookshop is a 3CR supporter.